This is Tripwire Week in Review for the week ending February 16th, 2024. I'm Haley Keen with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Lonnie Hendry, Chief Product Officer, and Stephen Bushbaum, Research Director. This week, all eyes were on retail sales and the latest CPI reading, both of which are supposed to be part of the Fed's rate cut decisions. While the market was watching these metrics, the TREP team was digging into the extend and pretend narrative and signs of distress hiding in the lodging sector. Stephen, why don't you start by quickly breaking down some of the headlines? Sure. Thanks, Haley. So we started off the week with what I would say was the biggest news of the week, CPI coming in much hotter than everyone expected. Now, I consider this a bit of a non-event, at least at the market moving headline level, because so much of that was driven by housing. And we know that the CPI's measure of housing inflation is flawed, whether you're talking about the fact that it's owner's equivalent rent that's included or the way shelter rent which is consistent with the apartment market is measured because of the six month moving average and how it's sampled once every six months. So I kind of look at the CPI as meh, it, sure it's hot, but we were already expecting the Fed to stay on hold. And then the second largest piece of news was retail sales. And so this kind of canceled out the inflationary aspects we got from CPI with retail sales coming in significantly weaker than expected, down 0.8% month over month, I believe. And so this one, I would say, is perhaps a little bit more relevant to what we all kind of were expecting to see. But again, it's just one data point. So if I'm just going to take these first two headlines as is, I say, well, Maybe there's a case for slightly higher rates, but you know, at the end of the day, the Fed moves on the PCE inflation report. The CPI is really just one of their talking points. And then in terms of extend and pretend, my gosh, we have gotten so much remit data in this week and we're continuing to see the exact same narrative. Higher rates are causing extreme pain. Interest rate caps are incredibly expensive. And we'll unpack some of that extend and pretend narrative here a little bit later in the session. I agree with you. Like CPI, non-starter, in my opinion. I mean, there was some narrative before they released the number. Everyone was saying it's going to come in hotter and maybe send the markets one way or the other. I think at this point, it's been well documented. Some of the, the issues with that calculation, with the lagging indicators of the shelter and other things that I think people really at this point kind of view it as a benign measure. In fact, we've seen a lot of people maybe take a more aggressive position and say, they just don't trust the CPI number. So I don't think that that moves the needle. I think it doesn't really impact the Fed's, you know, go forward strategy with the reading that came in. If it come in 2x what was expected, then that's something to talk about. I think in this instance, it was not really something that moves the needle. Yeah, there is one story I wanted to, to highlight here that was published by Joy Wiltermuth yesterday, uh, highlighting some pain in the retail sector that I feel like is rather timely given today's retail sales news. So there's a couple retailers uh, that she highlighted here that have some financing pains. So Big Lots is reportedly looking for financing after years of losses and waning liquidity. The kids apparel company Children's Place also began exploring new financing and then Finally, fashion retailer Express has been looking to restructure its debt. And so the, the surprising one for me out of these three was the big lots, because big lots being a budget retailer, you'd think, okay, let's group them with TJ Maxx. And generally what we found in our research in terms of debt service coverage or net cash flow trends was that retail shopping centers that are anchored by TJ Maxx or have a TJ Maxx in them generally have outperformed the higher end tenant mixtures that also have a TJ Maxx in them. And so 
when you look at that tenant mixture and you think, okay, well, if Big Lots is alongside TJ Maxx, shouldn't they be doing relatively well with foot traffic, given what inflation has meant for consumers' bottom lines? But clearly, there's uh, still some some pain that's lurking out there when it comes to retailer profitability. It's also interesting, if you look at jobless claims, they fell the late in the latest week, but they're still above recent lows. And so there's, there's just a lot of moving parts here. It's a leap here in February, which kind of skews the data some, according to some analysts. Uh, the retail sales numbers, which I think were strong through the holiday season, now starting to show a little bit of decline. I don't think any of these things really indicate anything one way or another. I do think, though, as Haley mentioned in the lead-in, you are starting to see some central themes just across the CRE landscape with extend and pretend narrative. We had some discussion with Daniel DiMartino Booth around the lodging sector. And so I think for today, focusing our efforts on some of the data-driven analysis that we can provide around those two topics will be really germane for our listeners. Okay, so let's jump into that extend and pretend theme. We were kind of digging into why we're talking about it again and how is it different this time than what we saw in the great financial crisis? Yeah, so this week, Haley, just to give our listeners some context, we had our friend, a friend of the firm, uh, Diane Holick, reached out to us from CNBC I wanted to talk around some themes that we're seeing in the data, and this extended pretend discussion proved to be pretty viable um, when when talking with her. And I think they aired something on their broadcast at some point this last Monday. And so it's really interesting. You're seeing this pick up steam in the the national media. You were hearing last year survive till 25. Now you're hearing survive through 25. Um, there's been a lot of optimism around the marketplace, and we've seen a lot of extensions, modifications, et cetera. Stephen and I have talked exhaustively on our Market Pulse webinars and other about just the broad ranging number of deals that have been extended or modified and what that means for the broader market. I do think, though, an underappreciated component of this extended pretend narrative, though, is that it worked well during the great financial crisis because those properties were refinancing into a lower interest rate environment, uh, lower interest rates, lower cap rate, where every additional dollar of NOI was accretive because cap rate compression and lower cost of capital. The exact opposite is happening here. During the great financial crisis, it was a huge illiquid market where there was not capital available, there was not transaction activity, um, the Fed was aggressively cutting rates. There were a lot of things that really incentivized the extend and pretend or split note, hope note type of structure to try to just get through the crisis. And I think if you went through each of those bullet points um, in the current perspective, the Fed's aggressively raised rates over the last 18 months. Um, the full effects of those rates haven't actually played out in the market. They certainly haven't been quantified in the form of sales price discovery because we still even today have a pretty large bid-ask spread between uh, what buyers are willing to pay and what sellers are willing to accept. And if you look at loan origination volume, significantly down. So not illiquid like it was in the GFC, but down about 50% from 22 to 23. The real trigger is in-place interest rates on these notes coming due are in the three to five percent range with most of them being sub four four and a half if you just do some refi analysis in the current rate environment six and a half to ten depending on asset depending on loan size etc it's going to make for some really tough math for those deals to pencil you also factor in lower ltvs that lenders are going to be willing to do higher debt service coverage thresholds higher debt yield constraints all of those things that were favorable heading out of the gfc 
would be viewed negative in this environment to extend. So, Stephen, I know you put some thought into this and you had put together some data, um, you know, showcasing how just large the the extend and pretend or modification, et cetera, had been last year. I mean, what are your thoughts relative to this being compared to GFC or, or as a viable strategy going forward? So I think we're still going to see a lot of willingness to extend loans, at least right now, because you still have a, a large bid-ask spread, like you were saying. There's a lot of uncertainty about values. And at the end of the day, the last thing the special servicer wants to do on these loans is flush them through the system when we're at the, the trough of pricing. If you run the numbers, the discounted cash flow, or really it's, it's called a net present value calculation. So special servicers, just to give a little background here, they are held to the standard of what's called the net present value rule. So they have to defend whether or not they're going to extend or liquidate a loan based on ultimately what they think will produce the highest net present value, the highest recovery. And so if you're flushing through an office loan today from the numbers we've published on where office values have gone, I mean, you're looking at 50 to 60% value declines. If you think some of that's going to you know, ultimately come back, say, three, four, five years down the road, which is a big if, but you know, let's just hang in there for a second, then you're going to say, well, you know, why would I flush it through today if I think ultimately my recovery is going to be higher if I wait, you know, three to five years, let the borrower inject capital. And that's really the key, I think, the, the key distinguishing point here. And that the where we've come from relative from GFC to today is that special servicers have already gone through this song and dance during the GFC and have gotten a lot more efficient at running these calculations. And ultimately, they're being, I would say, relatively diligent, in my personal opinion, about the amount of capital they're requiring borrowers to put in, whether it's to pay down the loan or to set aside funds to deal with leasing issues. So you know, the bottom line is, I think we're going to see more of it. Um, and the only reason why we won't see more extended pretend is if borrowers stop committing that capital because they think ultimately the writing's on the wall and it's going to be better to give back the property rather than to throw you know good money after after bad. Yeah, I think I, I don't disagree with you, Stephen, and we've seen that the data proves it out. I guess maybe I'm just too pragmatic or just too logical. It, it doesn't make sense in some of these scenarios. Let's take office as an example in any of the major markets that are struggling right now, San Francisco, LA, Seattle, DC, uh, Minneapolis. I mean, you have millions of square feet of sublease availability. You have vacancy rates that are in the 30 plus percent. I think I saw something this week that said, San Francisco vacancy stood at about 32.5% or 33%. The value diminution to those buildings is not being reflected, even in the capital contributed extend and pretend model, right? So yes, it's great. The servicer can get 20 million or 30 million from the borrower to extend the loan. And look, like I think what this says is brought more broadly, the property owners at some level have some expectation that the government or whomever else is involved in, in the markets won't allow their value losses to be fully realized. If they didn't think that way, you can't tell me that these class B and C office buildings that are just literally functionally obsolete would be worth throwing any money after at this point. And that's the part where I feel Look, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm a free market guy. I want things to work well. I want the market to be efficient. I want everyone to make money. But it's just at some level, the math just doesn't make sense. Like it just doesn't work. And even if the Fed cuts rates, you know, dramatically from where they are now, I mean, we had like once in a generation type of interest rate environment when these deals were financed. 
And we had put out some research looking at the parallels between these large office buildings and the regional mall, super regional mall financing, where most of these buildings at some point in time over the last 20 years have been full-term IO loans, where those owners haven't invested CapEx into those buildings, which is why they're functionally obsolete in the first place. So it's just, it's, it's very interesting to watch. The data though proves your thesis. I mean, I think 70% of the recent extensions and modifications were between one and 24 months or less. And most all of them came with significant capital infusion. So there's still an appetite, obviously. I just wonder at some point when, when does the math come into the equation? And that's the part I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around. I, I'm I'm right there with you, Lonnie, because you, you step back and look at these things and you got to think to yourself with AI making the advances that it is, right? We already have remote work that's cut into office-based demand. AI surely is going to do even more of that over the long run. And so we haven't seen as much capitulation in, in values either, you know, from lenders basically just saying, you know what, like, we're not going to to discount the loan or restructure this or the borrower saying, you know, I, I don't have enough confidence that things are going to rebound or I'll make a return on the capital I'm going to have to invest. Um, so we haven't seen that capitulation. So what I think could ultimately turn the tide here in terms of the data trends we're seeing is if you do start getting a sense that we're going to have that, that soft landing job losses, or just to say quite simply, some sort of a recession hit that would ultimately move the needle on borrower's decisions. And I will say just Again, from like an economist standpoint, I am glad to see these negotiations taking place because when we talk about deadweight loss in economics, um, we had a story last week that we covered in the office sector where the tenant, uh, it was a government tenant, I believe, was basically holding off on signing that lease because the loan was with a special servicer. There's a possibility that a receiver is going to be put in place. So when you have leasing decisions being put on hold because of the loan status, that's ultimately hurting the property value. So when you have negotiations taking place and tenants have confidence that ultimately they're not going to be, going to be walking into a building that's entering a bad situation, that's a, that's a good thing. That's ultimately maximizing values. To say this another way, negotiations are in everybody's best interest so long as both parties can agree to um, ultimately what the value is and what each party will have to contribute or concede to get you know the best outcome. Yeah, I think let's, I know we we're kind of long in the tooth on this one, but just yeah. three random examples for you. Um, just came across this in this last week. Chicago office, lender, Slate Asset Management, had a $14.5 million loan, building's 96,000 square feet. Looks like traded significantly below current loan balance. We saw this week, 211 North Irvay Street in Dallas, $14 million appraisal when the property was financed a few years ago. Recent foreclosure sale, 8 million bucks, $42 a square foot. Uh, another high profile office building in Portland, Montgomery Park, built in 1920. 2019, the building sold for 255 million. This week, lender put in a credit bid, 38 million. So that's the part for me is like, I'm not suggesting that all office buildings are going that route. I'm not suggesting that a majority of office buildings are going that route. I am suggesting that some of these that are in this modification restructuring type of arena, though, are going that route. And unfortunately for these borrowers, it's going to go that route after they've made significant capital contributions to try to extend the loan. So I know, Haley, you had mentioned some of the lodging stuff. Did you did you want to give us a really cool segue so Stephen and I can transition to the hotel sector? I think the segue here is just, and maybe this is not a positive one, but 
We're hearing about office and the negatives there, but we're also seeing signs of distress hiding in the shadows for lodging. So let's quickly just run through some of the numbers that we've been seeing and put some perspective around it. Yeah, I think sometimes the office headlines have been so large that they've cast a shadow across the other asset classes. You're seeing multifamilies get some distress talk, and rightfully so in certain markets. The lodging sector, though, has been kind of on a tear coming out of COVID, and like everything's been super positive. You guys have heard me talk about on the podcast for the last couple of years just how expensive hotels have gotten. I mean, like just run-of-the-mill, courtyard-by-marriott type of hotels that are costing some multiple what they were a few years ago. So we dug a little deeper this week. If you look at upcoming maturities in the CMBS market across the lodging loans, it's pretty sizable. In 24, there's about almost 18 billion, 17.6 billion worth of upcoming maturities in 24. There's over 13 billion in 2025. So together you're looking at about a $30 billion uh, set of maturities in the CMBS market. If we parse them out by year, 4.7 billion of the 17.6 billion in 24 maturities currently sit with debt service coverage ratio less than 125. So Stephen, I'll let you do the mental math on that. What is that, over 25 or 30% of the maturities are at, at 125 or less? Five and a half billion of that 17 plus billion uh, maturities have interest rates at 550 or less. And five billion of those maturities have in-place debt yield under nine. So as we talked about earlier, lenders looking at DSCR and debt yield constraints as, as a real impact to the office market, I would make the case that they probably apply at least at some level, maybe not equally, but some level to the hotel. If we look at the 25 maturities, uh, 2.7 billion of the 13 billion and 25 have DSCR less than 125X. 8 billion of that has in place interest rates. So, you know, roughly 60% or so at five and a half or less. And 3 billion of the 13 billion have debt yields under nine. So if you look at that just at, at face value, while the REVPAR, the ADR, all the public reporting sounds really great today, it definitely paints a slightly different picture when you look at the data. It does. And I would say just looking at these two years of maturities, the 2024 one is a lot more concerning because as you pointed out, I mean, we're close to, well, a, a significant chunk of 2024 maturities have cash flow stress already showing. And over the last few months, we've seen that while we have been on a downward trend for delinquency and special servicing for lodging, that's stalled and uh, over the last couple of months actually reversed and we've gotten some upticks in the delinquency rate for lodging. So it looks like the writing's on the wall that we're probably going to see more distress come through in the lodging sector this year. And if I'm racking my brain here, I think it was a few months ago, we talked about the advanced bookings for Disney and some of the promotions that they were running going into the holidays. And so just to bring back up my joke about uh, Disney as a barometer for the health of the leisure travel industry, I think you're seeing advanced bookings still take it on the nose right now. And there's a lot of questions about what kind of a summer will we see for travel? And if it's not as good as we were hoping, geez, you look at these 2024 maturities and you just have to ask, how are how are these going to get taken out? Yeah. And it's interesting. If you look at just the sector at large, a lot of these hotels, and again, like I have a limited sample, but I guess, I mean, I've stayed in a hotel, it seems like every single week for the last three years at some level. A lot of these hotels are tired, Stephen. I mean, like they missed their PIP plan coming into COVID. Uh, a lot of their reserves were spent to keep the lights on. They replenished those reserves, but they haven't fully renovated these units. And you have a lot of hotels that just look tired. They are tired. They've benefited from this revenge travel and other things. And 
you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the layoffs over the last month or two. If that starts to put any type of a strain on the business traveler, I think you're you're going to see some some negative headwinds for the lodging sector. And the, even with office and the challenges they have, some of those buildings have good weighted average lease terms. So the, the revenues, the re, you know, the NOI is built in on a lot of those, notwithstanding crazy increases in expenses. But on the hotel sector, as you know, I mean, this is a night to night business. Um, any immediate negative impact is felt um, on the revenue side um, and the expenses are fairly fixed. Look, I'm not calling for some ultimate decline of lodging or nothing like that. This is not a bearish take from a macro perspective. It's just looking at the data. I think there's a pretty strong case that could be made around this sector, you know, maybe elevating to to a little bit more distress than what we've seen in the last couple of years. Absolutely. And just to draw a comparison to another property type class that we had started talking about relatively early in what I'd say some of those cracks or distress or stress appearing, is we were talking about multifamily this time last year. And I think, you know, you and I got some pushback from others in the industry saying, what are you talking about? Multifamily is fine. And, you know, while it, to your point, it, it's not like we saw a broad level of distress or waves of distress come in, but cracks are showing. So, you know, we, we take the data as it comes. Okay, so moving on to our property type segment, we'll stick on the theme of lodging. And we had one story this week about Marriott looking to purchase the Sheridan Grand Chicago Hotel. Sure, this was a huge one. Uh, Marriott purchased the Sheridan Grand Chicago Hotel for $500 million. Now, this is a really interesting story because it was a pre-negotiated transaction. So CRE Direct reported that the Marriott International is paying $500 million, or $410,000 per room, for the 1,200-room Sheridan Grand Chicago Hotel. It's paying $300 million for the 34-story building and $200 million for the land beneath it. In 2017, the property was appraised for $320 million. So the proposed purchase was first reported by The Real Deal and is the result of a non-compete clause that the property's owner, Tishman Realty, had in place when the former Starwood Hotels and Resorts Worldwide had managed the hotel. Tishman had purchased the land beneath the hotel in 2009 for $52.5 million. The clause gave Tishman a put option, effectively forcing Marriott to buy the property and the land beneath it for a total of $500 million. Marriott had a acquired Starwood in 2016 in a deal valuing the latter at $13 billion. Tishman had sued, arguing that Marriott's acquisition of Starwood would result in the breach of a non-compete clause in Starwood's management contract. That clause prevented Starwood's affiliates from owning, franchising, operating, or managing a hotel within a couple of miles of the Sheridan Grand Chicago. So after its acquisition by Marriott, the management of several other properties ended up being in breach of that clause. Marriott has until the end of the year to complete its purchase, and the company said it would pay cash for the property. The hotel and the land beneath it, or the fee interest, are encumbered by a total of $255 million in CMBS debt, with a $140 million loan secured by the fee interest and the remaining $115 million secured by the leasehold interest. The two loans collateralize a 2017 SASB deal with the fee interest making up about 55% of that deal and the leasehold interest taking the rest. The debt had originally matured in 2020, but it had four extension options that have been exercised, taking its final maturity to November. So this hotel was built in 1992 and underwent $25 million in, re in renovations in 2015. Uh, the Sheridan in Chicago has a fitness center, indoor swimming pool, 125,000 square feet of meeting and event space, 420 parking spots, and a restaurant and bar options, multiple restaurant and bar options. Stephen, 
Well done, my friend. I'll say uh, I think this creates a one-on-one opportunity too for the difference between lease fee, leasehold, fee simple interest in real estate because this one has a little bit of, of each of those things and they all generate values slightly differently and they all encumber values slightly differently if and when not transferred together. So that's something we can maybe follow up with on a, on a subsequent pod. Just for our listeners out there in that Chicago MSA for the hotel markets, 39.4% of the CMBS universe is currently delinquent in the hotel sector in the Chicago MSA. So there's some distress brewing in that uh, in that MSA, largely probably because office occupancies and business travel to Chicago are so low. Um, about 8% of the hotel market we track there has debt service coverage, less than one right now. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this this transaction, which at 410,000 a room, I'd say probably a pretty good number, right? Um, how does that fit in with the broader Chicago hotel market? Yeah, and just stepping back from this and saying, okay, well, what's the signal or takeaway for this, given that it was uh, kind of an atypical transaction? So let's let's be clear here. The owner exercised their put options. So their put options, they're forcing Marriott to buy the property. So in order for them to say, I'm going to walk away from this transaction and just take the cash and move on, they clearly think that the value of the collateral has declined enough that they don't want to hold it anymore. They don't see the value over the long run. So they're putting that asset back to Marriott. And that's that's what I think is the important thing that we just, just mentioned here, that this had a put option, a call option, a put call option. Without getting into the weeds here, it's just interesting to me that it was the put option that was exercised by the owner putting this asset back to Marriott. Yeah, fair point. And I think that's reflective of of where where this thing trades given what we just talked through on the um, on the overarching market. So really great story on our CRE Direct team. We also listed this as part of our rundown um, newsletter. And so if you're not subscribing to the rundown newsletter, you should uh, email us in at podcast.trep.com. And Haley or, or her team will get back to you with how you can subscribe to that. Best way to stay up to date on current lease transactions, sales transaction, and other, you know, newsworthy stories on a daily basis. Okay, so let's transition here to multifamily headlines. Like Lonnie mentioned, we had a lot of coverage this week in our newsletters, but let's talk about just a few of them here today. So first up, we have some San Antonio apartments selling for $16.9 million. Massive Capital has paid $16.9 million, or roughly $83,000 per unit, for the 204-unit Horizon Apartments in San Antonio, according to the San Antonio Business Journal. The Houston real estate firm assumed a $10.1 million Fannie Mae loan and took out an additional $2.27 million loan as part of its purchase. The Horizon at 4848 Goldfield Drive was built in 1974 and has a mix of one, two, and three unit bedroom units ranging from 630 to just under 1,200 square feet, according to apartmentfinder.com. The property includes two swimming pools, laundry facilities, a playground, pet stations, clubhouse, and on-site maintenance. Next up, we have more San Francisco apartment defaults. Mosser Company has defaulted on an $88 million loan against 12 apartment properties with 459 units in San Francisco, according to The Real Deal. An unknown lender provided the financing in 2018. When the financing was originated, the apartment properties were 94% occupied and valued at $154 million. They're now at 82% occupancy. Cushman and Wakefield has been hired to offer the debt. We've previously written about how apartment rents in San Francisco have struggled to recover to their pre-lockdown levels. 
Yeah, so it seems like every week we either get an office sale in San Francisco or we get some sort of multifamily challenge. Look, I'm long San Francisco. I think at some point when they get the quality of life issues fixed, some of these transactions are going to come in and feel like relative bargains. I mean, very high barrier to entry marketplace, very tough to to beat that on a long-term basis. I think they have some short-term challenges and short-term, maybe five years, seven years, but on a relative basis, I think San Francisco is going to come back strong. But in the interim, there's definitely going to be some buying opportunities. And we see that every week. To go back to your San Antonio story, Stephen. It's interesting. If you look at, this was an assumption. So they assumed the Fannie Mae loan, as you mentioned, 10 million, which, you know, we've talked about that in-place interest rate on those deals being an attractive component to an acquisition strategy for buyers in the market. But if you add in that supplemental or additional 2.27 million on this deal, that's about a 73, 74% loan to value, which is really pretty high given today's marketplace. So uh, maybe some runway for this one to increase the value or do something with that $2 million to try to add some additional value. San Antonio is an interesting market though. They, they had always been kind of a sleeper, stable multifamily market. They had a large Air Force base there. There was a, a fairly good working class demographic in terms of multifamily users and, and occupants. And over the last five years, they've seen a significant run up in rental rates and new construction supply coming online. Um, so it'll be interesting. This is one of those markets where, you know, was considered tertiary probably five years ago, elevated and benefited from its close proximity to Austin over the last several years. And we're really starting to see a lot of pullback in those markets just because of the rapid rate of, of appreciation over the last several years. And then in the retail space, this week we sent out a trading alert to our readers that Ralph Lauren was cutting space and lowering rent at their headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. Yes, we had written about this building in the past and specifically the Ralph Lauren lease. So we had known for a little while that Ralph Lauren was looking to cut their space and generally was, was shopping around. They were deciding whether or not they were going to renew this lease. We found out they would be renewing it, but we didn't have the renewal rent. So in December, we wrote that Ralph Lauren was keeping their headquarters at 650 Madison Avenue, but they were reducing their footprint by roughly 100,000 square feet. At that time, details were not known about the rent and they were just announced. So Ralph Lauren will reduce their rent by 30% from $88 per square foot to $62 per square foot, according to Crane's New York business. The combination of a reduction in space and lower rent will cut rental revenue for the Ralph Lauren lease by approximately $12.78 million, climbing from $21.5 million to $8.68 million. The revenue decline potentially pushes the debt service coverage ratio on a net cash flow basis close to break even. So the 2022 debt service coverage was 1.36 with net cash flow of just under 39 million. And financials for the first nine months of 2023 showed cash flow was on a very similar trajectory with a debt service coverage ratio of 1.37. That puts the implied excess cash flow close to 14 million, which is just above the 12.78 million revenue hit that's going to be taken from that reduction in space and rent from the Ralph Lauren lease terms. This property has been the subject of several Trepwire articles over the past few years. So earlier in 2023, we noted that Vernado had written down the value of its ownership at 650 Madison to zero. The office was valued at 1.2 billion in 2019, but that was later lowered to 800 million. 
several years ago, we noted that Ralph Lauren was looking to reduce its North American office footprint by 30%. This building backs a $586.8 million senior loan and a $213.2 million B note. And this debt is split across a number of different 2019 and 2020 CMBS deals, as well as it's in a single asset deal, uh, 2019 single asset deal that holds the entirety of the B note. And this loan does not mature until 2029. So I can tell you, I bought a couple of button-down Ralph Lauren shirts from Dillard's not too long ago. So it's kind of, I'm kind of, I don't know if it's cool anymore to say you got anything at Dillard's because that means you like went to the mall, which a lot of people probably don't think is cool anymore. I can tell you they haven't reduced the cost of those shirts 30%. I think for two button-down shirts, it was like 250 bucks. I mean, I'm not kidding. It was over $100 a shirt. What a, what in the world? I, I need to go back and renegotiate. I mean, this is a pretty significant haircut, Stephen. I know you said reduce the rent by 30% from 88 to 62, but they also downsized, as you mentioned. So the combination of that to that uh, revenue line item hit is significant. I mean, going from 20, what, 21.5 million to 8.68 million, that's a significant swing. So this is, this is an interesting story. You know, it's, it's, I'm sure the, the, they're glad to have them renewing. They're glad to have them still paying something. But this isn't kind of your traditional right sizing. This is a pretty significant hit on the revenue side. It is. And, and let's just hope that Ralph Lauren isn't doing any shrinkflation on their shirts because the last thing that any of us wants is, you know, when you, you bend forward and that shirt tail pops out of your pants, that's that's frustrating if there's shrinkflation there. Yeah, unfortunately, when you have the shape I have, it's usually like uh, doesn't tuck in all the way on the front side. So we don't have to get into the details there. But I will say Ralph Lauren still makes a quality shirt. Not sure if it's worth a hundred bucks that I ponied up for that bad boy. So next up, we have a Florida mall value reduced to below the loan balance. Prior to the most recent appraisal reduction, the asset behind the $54.5 million Lakeland Square Mall loan had a pro forma appraised amount of $95 million. According to February remit data, the appraised value was more than halved to $45.5 million based on an October 2023 appraisal, which is just below the loan's outstanding balance. So this loan is backed by a regional mall in Lakeland, Florida. This loan was transferred to the special servicer in April 2023 due to a maturity default. The debt service coverage ratio has dropped to 1.0 in 2023 from 1.58 in 2022. Similarly, the occupancy fell to 78% in 2023 from 93% in 2022. This loan makes up 69% of the remaining collateral behind a 2013 deal, which only contains two outstanding loans. Yeah, this is another one of those, Stephen, where I guess you're going to see some, because it says uh, transfer to special servicer in April due to maturity default. This kind of goes into that extend and pretend narrative. But I think on the retail side, we've actually seen this work even in, in the current environment. They just continue to reduce the value and, and continue to try to generate cash flow. It's There's not that many malls in America, you know, but every week we have at least one or two that we get to talk about on the podcast. Lately, it's been some you know, slightly positive news with uh, our friends at Spinoso and a few others being able to rebound some of these assets. But this is one that uh, clearly not great. $95 million appraisal down to $45 million is not a great sign. And Lonnie, let's squeeze in one industrial story for our loyal industrial fans out there. We have gotten the memo. We're trying to include at least one industrial story every week. And so this week will be no different. There's a South Jersey industrial portfolio that just transacted uh, Aries management has paid $118.5 million, just over $106 a square foot for a portfolio. 
that consists of 14 buildings, 1.12 million square feet. This is in Southern New Jersey. That story comes to us from the Philadelphia Business Journal. Uh, Aries, which is a Los Angeles investment manager, bought the portfolio from White Cell Construction of Mount Laurel, New Jersey. They were represented by CBRE. If you look at the portfolio itself, it includes buildings at 8021 Route 130 and 1050 Thomas Bush Memorial Highway. So this is another good story, large transaction, uh, significant square footage over a million square feet. And as we mentioned the last couple of weeks, Stephen, this one is a little more palatable for my brain, just over $106 a square foot. I can make that make sense to me. That's a bargain. <laughs> and finally, in office, we had a bunch of stories this week, but I think two of the major ones we wanted to touch on surround a discounted restructure and some new modification details that were announced. Sure. So first up, we have a trading alert that we just put out today on Jericho Plaza, a loan that failed to pay off at maturity and the borrower request a discounted restructure. The $149.2 million Jericho Plaza loan was added to the watch list in November 2023 for having an impending maturity date in January 2024. The loan is now matured and failed to pay off. According to February remit data, the loan is now in the hands of the special servicer for maturity default, and its delinquency status is listed as performing matured balloon. The loan has three one-year extension options remaining that could push the maturity date out to January 2027. The catch, however, is that the loan was originally structured with an interest rate cap that has a strike rate of 2.45%. So according to February special servicing comments, the borrower refused to purchase a replacement interest rate cap to exercise their extension option. In addition, the borrower indicated that they felt the loan is over-leveraged and they requested a discounted restructure. So I ran some numbers today from Chatham Financial and Pensford Financial using their interest rate cap calculators, and the cost to replace this interest rate cap would be roughly 2.25 to 2.5% of the loan amount, which equates to roughly 3.4 to 3.7 million. The loan is collateralized by a 665,000 square foot office property in Jericho, New York. The building was built in 1978 and renovated in 2019. The most recent financials for the first nine months of 2023 show the debt service coverage ratio on a net cash flow basis was 1.02 for the loan with occupancy at 90%. This is a slight decline from the 2022 financials when the debt service coverage ratio was 1.21 and occupancy was 94%. This loan makes up the entirety of the collateral behind a 2022 SASB deal. So this is a relatively new issue loan that's already having issues. This loan also has a non-securitized $20 million mezzanine loan. So to put some uh, LTV numbers to it, the first mortgage or the senior loan was 70% LTV based on the purchase price back in 2021, 2022. And if you account for the mezzanine loan, this was 80% LTV. And so this is, um, I think, very much in the wheelhouse of what we've been talking about, Lonnie, of interest rate caps being still incredibly expensive. And ultimately, this, this loan is going to be one to watch in the coming months. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, this will be one that we keep an eye on. It's just amazing the impact that those uh, interest rate caps can have on cash flow. And it's amazing to see just how the volatility in that market. I mean, that's what we were talking about in the intro here is just throwing good money after bad having to have these things in place, like operating assets in the volatile market is a very costly endeavor. And people are realizing now that 
um, those costs are very real and can add up to be significant. It's, it's a 3.4 to $3.7 million coming out of operations is a pretty significant blow, assuming everything else goes to plan. Right. To our comments earlier in the, the podcast about capitulation, this is the case where this one's walking a tightrope and we're just going to have to wait and see which way it falls. If ultimately the borrower and special servicer can arrive at modification terms that make sense, or if the borrower says, you know, at the end of the day, I'm throwing good money after bad. And I just have to cut my losses. You know, on the on the MBA panel that I was on this week, Stephen, it was an office panel, and um, it was really interesting. The moderator uh, said, you know, they're telling some of their borrowers, you may not like the interest rate today, but you certainly won't like the value in six months. Um, and the challenge is like, you know, that's that's kind of where we're at with some of these these office buildings is. The interest rate, the cost to refi, the cost to buy a cap, all those things may be significant today. But if things continue down the path they are, um, that appraised value may come in significantly less six months, nine months, 12 months down the road. And guess what? That just means more capital to try to get a deal refinanced at that point. Yeah. And uh, you got to feel for the borrow in this one because where we're at in 2021, going into January, 2022, when this deal, when this loan was issued and in the, the SASB deal, we didn't think it would be quite as painful as it ultimately has proven to be with office demand. So this is, this is a rough one. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, the feds actions fairly unprecedented, you know, it's just a double whammy. Like a lot of these guys in the office sector, these were not speculative bets. Like we've seen in some other property classes, these were considered to be fairly stable assets, institutional type of deals. And the market dynamics just shifted at a pace faster than the uh, the viability of the offices. So to round out our office segments, we have modification details announced for one market plaza in San Francisco. Less than a month ago, we noted that recent news and special servicing notes indicated that a modification was forthcoming for the one market plaza loan. Details were recently revealed by a press release from the Paramount Group. So the press release states that the $975 million loan will be paid down by $125 million to $850 million. The maturity date will be extended by three years to February 2027 with an additional one-year extension option subject to certain conditions. And finally, the loan interest rates will be increased by five basis points from 4.03% currently to 4.08%. Now, what's interesting here is that the prior month's special servicer notes indicated that a significant capital contribution by the borrower would be used to pay down the loan and then the remainder of the funds would be deposited with the lender to support future cash flow needs of the property. So it remains to be seen what, if any, additional cash will be deposited with the lender to address the future cash flow needs of the property and specifically the lease roll that's coming up over the next couple of years. So the One Market Plaza property backs the 20, uh, 2017 SASB deal. The collateral is a nearly 1.6 million square foot office that was built in 1976 and renovated in 2016. Google is the top tenant with just under 22% of space on a lease that ends in 2025. And Google has announced that they will be downsizing its office footprint nationally, but it still remains unclear how much, if any, the One Market Plaza property will be impacted. Visa is the second largest tenant with 10.2% of the space on a lease that ends in 2026. September 2023 financials report occupancy of 96% when debt the debt service coverage ratio was 2.12% through the first nine months of the year.
I got to say, Stephen, I think we've, we've packed in a bunch of info on this this week's episode, man. Like ton of coverage across all the asset classes, deep dive into some potential distress in the lodging sector. I feel like uh, I feel like this one's going to resonate with people. It's uh, Listen, there's a lot of positive, silver lining, good transaction stories every week. Unfortunately, there's a lot of the negative ones too, and then and we have to cover both of them. So I don't want people to think we're taking a negative bent. We're just trying to report the data as it comes in. And unfortunately, given where we're at in the cycle, uh, these offices, offices in particular, are really you know facing some some headwinds. And we have more to offer our listeners, Lonnie. So I'll jump into a few programming notes that we have this week. I kind of judge how quickly the year is moving by how often I talk about our Market Pulse webinars, and I'm sure you guys do too because you're the hosts of those webinars. So somehow we have our next one coming up already next Friday, the 23rd at 1 p.m. Eastern. This is a way for Lonnie and Steven to just give a broad update on what we've been watching, but also specifically talk about some of the data we're tracking. So on this edition, we'll be talking about upcoming maturities, an update on commercial property valuations and some of the latest bank earnings news. So if you're interested in joining us for that webinar, send an email to podcast at trip.com or look at our LinkedIn and you'll find the link there. And then for our clients, so we recently launched TREP CRE. You may have heard us talk about that a few weeks ago, but for our TREP CRE clients, we also put on targeted trainings and webinars for you guys. So the next one that we'll be hosting is on February 27th at 3 p.m. Eastern. And this one will dive into the special servicing process and multifamily as an asset class in general. So for those that don't know, we cover the special servicing rate every month. Recently, we just put out our special servicing report and we noted that the rate actually climbed 17 basis points which is the highest level since October 2021. So if you want to understand more about what that means and how to find some of that data in our products, send us a note and you can sign up for that webinar as well. It's amazing to see the interaction we've had with people signing up for those. Haley, you and Stephen both know, as soon as we put out the links for registration, I'm shocked every month at how quickly those numbers climb triple digits, sometimes four digits of attendees and registrants. And it's really amazing. We appreciate everybody taking the time to register for those things. And if you're a client, the targeted training series is really impactful. You get to leverage our employees' subject matter expertise of our tools to really show you firsthand how to leverage and maximize your utility of the tools um, and the products. And so if you haven't joined any of those, you should, uh, I would encourage you to check those out because it's really impactful for uh, for actual users of the products. And turning to shout outs, we had a team of people out in San Diego over the weekend and into this week at the MBA Craft Conference. So I was not there, but we got great feedback from the team that was on the ground there. Trisha, Tommy, Riley, and Nicole, who said they met a lot of the, our podcast listeners. So if you got to meet our team, we thank you for stopping by and they said they handed out a lot of podcast t-shirts, so send us an email or tweet us if you got one. We'd love to see it, but we appreciate you stopping by and just sharing with our group that you listen and any suggestions or feedback or you know what you like to do while you're listening to the podcast. A lot of you are dog walkers and runners while you listen, so that's great to hear. And then for other inbounds this week, Kate R. sent us some industrial properties, and I know we have a team member reaching back out to you. And then a shout out to the team at 3650 REIT who shared our episode on their LinkedIn page 
They said an issue in CRE is data smog, and the TREP podcast is helpful in that it identifies key trades nationally each week and explains how the trades reflect the state of the CRE market. So we appreciate your team and glad to hear you guys are listeners. Chase M. is a longtime listener of the podcast and recommends it to his colleagues. Kevin G. loves the podcast and was interested in our rundown newsletter, and a lot of you guys reached out for that. If you haven't heard back from myself or my colleague Ennis, Send us another email or check out our Twitter. We're always sharing rundown details and stories. You could find the link to sign up there. Nina M. discovered the podcast through her CCIM instructor, our friend Bo B., who Lonnie was just on his podcast as well. Yeah, Bo's the man. Uh, Bo and his brother, uh, Timmy, have a really great podcast called Commercially Speaking. If you haven't checked it out, you should give it a listen. Great guys. And Bo does a really excellent job of promoting what we're doing here at TREP and TREPWIRE on the podcast to try to get us new listeners every time he's teaching a class for CCIM. Jake S. was interested in some of our details and data surrounding the WeWork situation. Robert R. is a loyal listener. He said he discovered it around episode 165. The podcast gives him great directional market information and trends. A bunch of other people reached out as well. William C., David M., Kara F., Liam S., Mark M, Christine H, Manish A, John F, Matthew M, Donald M, Darren S, Christopher D. So thank you to everybody who got in touch with us this week. Yeah, and I have a few, Haley, that I got to toss in here. I love the shout outs. They're growing. Paul Bennett, my buddy, uh, he's on the Texas Tech Advisory Council with me, representative of Granite. Gave me a little bit of a hard time. He thought we took a too negative of a stance with the Dallas office commentary uh, when Daniel DiMartino Booth was on the episode. So uh, shook Paul's hand, told him I appreciate the uh, the insider baseball from his boots on the ground perspective and tried to clarify we were talking about central, central business district core Dallas office and not the suburbs, which Granite, by the way, does an incredible job developing, managing, et cetera. I'm going to be on a, on a, Twitter Spaces on Sunday, Haley, with our friend Shlomo Chop. So if you haven't seen that online on LinkedIn or Twitter, you can sign up. It's going to be pretty cool. We'll talk about some of the distress. I joined uh, my, our friend uh, Raphael C. on a CMBS 101 podcast last week, and I think that went really well. I ran into a couple of folks at the uh, at the NBA conference this last week, too. Uh, I met a gentleman named John R. from Bercadia. He was up in the Pacific Northwest. He told me he listens to the podcast at 2.0x speed. It was really interesting. He said, I can hear the Southern draw a little bit more in real life. And I'm like, I can only imagine what I sound like at two times speed. And then we met uh, Ben, ben S. He's a student, grad student at University of San Diego. Had lunch today with a friend of mine, Charles I. Uh, works for a nice bank here in Texas. Really great to get his perspective on what the lending environment was here from a local bank. Dan McNamara, our buddy, sent us some really cool swag that Haley, you put on the web. Can't wait to rock that out. Um, and then you might have seen on my Twitter, my friend Jason C. posted some really uh, nice golf balls in the mail to me, along with a really nice note. So uh, we're going to definitely do a little bit of golfing. And Donut Shorts, who's been a longtime listener and friend, uh, sent a couple of those uh, office stories I mentioned earlier in the uh, podcast today. So thanks for listening and thanks for sending data our way. We appreciate it. And one more shout out to Jim Young over at Realcom. I'll be doing a YouTube live stream with them tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern. So if you are interested, go to realcom.com at the top, Realcom Live. Uh, you will get the details to their weekly uh, weekly podcast on Friday. And you're going to be using a new microphone for that, if I'm not mistaken, right, Stephen? So you're going to have a little more bass in your voice? 
that's what I'm using right now. So oh, doesn't right. it seal? <laughs> no, I can't do it. Sorry, I can't even try. <laughs> Sounds good, my friend. All right, guys, a lot of stuff this week. So that's a wrap. With that, we'll close. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send an email to podcast.trip.com and subscribe to the Tripwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. 